This week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, we are taking a deep dive into Wizards of the Coast's D&D release schedule for 2023, taking a look at all the books that were announced and what it might mean for the future of the game. All that and more right now. Time for... The Eldritch Lawcast. Three, two, one... Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one podcast in all the spheres. That's right. This podcast is the number one on at least two continents, if not all continents. I was going to put a number to all continents, but I realized is it five? Five continents? Nobody knows. Nobody cares. I'm Ben Byrne here, as always, with Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin, James Ake. And James, I've got to ask you, uh, if you're thinking about D&D 5th edition, what adventure module sticks with you? What are you going to be nostalgic for in 6, edition 7.5? And you're like, oh, I remember 5e. That's when we played Curse of Strahd or Lost Minds of Fendelvar or Storm King, whatever it happened to be. Which one is the one that you will remember? If you, if you ask me... In particular, me in particular, yes. I'm going to think of two. Uh, they're going to be Princes of the Apocalypse and Waterdeep Dragon Heist. And those are the two big campaigns that I played when I was in college uh, playing 5th edition with friends from high school. Whenever I came back home from California, turned to Washington State, it was Prince of the Apocalypse. And then in the same world, because we set them outside of the Forgotten Realms, we moved on into Waterdeep Dragon Heist, which I was playtesting as it was being written uh, with that group of people. So a lot of really fond memories about those two in particular. What I, I don't hear a lot about Princes of the Apocalypse these days. No. It feels like it's one of the real forgotten modules, um, <laughs> kind of lost somewhere between Storm King's Thunder and Curse of Strahd, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what You what, are mistaken, what, but... <laughs> <laughs> somewhere in there. Uh, what makes it memorable to you? What that are, was what just are the... to emphasize the forgottenness. That's yeah, what that exactly. was. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. I'm, 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 just, I'm just having fun. Um, what, what makes it memorable? Well, uh, Princes is kind of a weird module. It's the second ever big module published for 5th edition. Um, and it was one of the first three which weren't written directly by wizards they were done by freelance studios under wizard supervision um and i think a curse of strahd was the first one that was brought in-house under wizards and it was kind of a kind of a sea change with that one it felt all very sort of tight and very tightly controlled whereas the ones that came before were the dragon queen princes and uh out of the abyss had a, a sort of there was a sort of rough edged quality to them that I think on one hand made them feel a little bit unpolished. On the other hand, I think gave them a sort of cavalier quality that makes them very fun to kind of tear apart and say, here's what I'm getting at. Uh, there's, there's an effect in, uh, in fandom culture that uh, I like to call the fan fiction effect. I heard about this. I can't credit it to anyone, but someone other than me came up with this name where if a show or a book or a piece of media is good, but also has glaring flaws, it makes it much more likely to get a ton 
of fan fiction because people can uh, insert their own ideas of this is this is great. The fix it fix. But I'd like it more if this. And that's exactly what drew me to Prince of the Apocalypse because there's so much cool stuff going on in there. But because it was this sort of, uh, it, it was new to an edition. It was a new edition, and Wizards was kind of focusing on other things. And there was a handoff between a third-party publisher. Uh, it it has all of these gaps that are perfect for uh, DMs to start creating their own thing out of it. Uh, that for me. When I was running it was there was a severe lack of extra planar stuff. Uh, you know, it's all about the four elements. Why not go to the elemental planes? Uh, mm. You're trying to, the villains are trying to summon these uh, elemental demigods from their home planes, but you kind of stick around in a, you know, in a <laughs> 200 square mile patch of the forgotten realms the entire time. Why not have the players go to the elemental planes for a bit? And that's exactly what I did. And, mm. and I love that. I love that extra planar stuff. And mm. and really tied it together into a more cohesive adventure for me. Yeah, nice. Uh, Sean Merwin, same question for you. When you think fifth edition, uh, what adventure is that going to conjure in your mind? Well, for me, it's the the question you proposed was most memorable, and memorable can be, you know, mm-hmm. memory because it's good or memory because it's interesting. And for me. <laughs> other than the ones that I contribute, other than the ones that I contributed to, the one that's most memorable to memorable to me is Out of the Abyss, for the reason that James already talked about. It was the first adventure. I, I was so steeped in it, the Adventures League, writing that and running that, that when I finally got away from that, the first hardcover that was released was Out of the Abyss. So I told my home group, mm-hmm. "I am going to run this. We are going to make this." we're going to make this serious campaign. We're going to really do this. So I sat down to read it and I went, wow, this is, this is out there. This is some interesting stuff. This is what don't you do as a, as an adventure writer. Don't start with the PCs in prison. Oh, here the PCs are in prison. (laughs) All right. So the next thing you don't do as an adventure writer is hit the DM with, 50 NPCs to to deal with immediately, especially if they're integral to the plot. Well, this adventure does that. Uh, you know, don't put them up against Demogorgon at like third level. Well, this adventure does that. So it was memorable, but it was fun. And so it was the first time for 5e that I just, as a DM, sat down and said, I'm going to take this adventure and not run it as written, but I'm going to use the brilliance of the plot Maybe not the the eccentricities of the the uh, encounters themselves, but the plot, and really make it my own. And so, in that sense, it was very memorable for me and for the group that I ran for that we got to do that. Uh, Dale Kingsmill, I anticipate, and I could be wrong. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, corner you or 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 um typecast you but i anticipate you may have a similar sort of answer to sean in terms of like not running a module or playing in a module but taking one and scrapping it for parts uh which module will you think of when you think 5e in a few years time i mean you're exactly right i i feel like uh elements of what james and sean both said apply to me you know sure. uh, taking an adventure and going okay i gotta change this as we go uh scrap it for parts uh but also being like there's so much potential here. How can I fix it? 
<laughs> I, I can fix it. Um, but I think for me, it'll be, there, there are multiple adventures that have really just captured my imagination conceptually, even if, um, you know, I, I am prone to uh, <laughs> altering the adventure path. Um, but the two that come to mind are Dragon Heist, as James said, and Curse of Strahd. I, I think that they both just, they, they hit you with a lot of genre. And that's what I love. That's what I can work with. Boof. That's the genre hitting you in the face. That's what that sound is. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait. I might have a... Oh, I had the sound on mute. Okay, let, let's go again. There we okay, go. Okay, wait, 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 wait. We'll All line right, it up. We'll line up. it up. Yeah. You get hit in the face with genre. There we go. Perfect. And the crowd goes wild. Oh! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Number one sound design in all the planes, Eldritch Lorecast. Yeah, <laughs> we should uh, never have been trusted with sound effects. I think that's true. Now I've got to fade it out. I've got to fade it out. I've got to fade manually. That's why I end up with uh, with it muted. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, with our sound effects uh, canon for this episode. Sorry, Dante. He's going to have a field trip editing this. Uh, let us talk about not just adventure modules, but um, third edition, I don't know why I said third edition, fifth edition books in general. There were a ton announced week before last during uh, Wizards Presents, and it sort of fell off the back of the news cycle for us when we were uh, talking about all the exciting things inside the 1D&D Unearthed Arcana. So I just wanted to take a little bit of time to really delve in because some of these I have an idea of what they might be and some of these I have no idea uh, and I'm kind of interested to gauge your excitement uh, for or lack of uh, for some of these. So starting with... Oh, sorry, that was a drum joke. Sorry. Back up. Dante, you'll edit this one. Dante, you'll edit this one. Starting with... Keys from the Golden Vault. (laughs) which is meant to be a heist-themed anthology uh, of adventures. Uh, James, you seem to like your anthology adventures. Are you excited for this? Are you a heist man? Um, I, I wrote Dragon Heist, my good man. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm prepping Blades in the Dark right now. My good man. <laughs> yes, I love heists, um, and and I'm I'm sort of doubly excited for this anthology. I do love anthologies. Um, this is a very weird case of, of, of inside baseball, but uh, a, a friend of mine who I did community theater with in high school uh, wrote for this anthology. Um, uh, and, you know, I it has never been published as an RPG writer before. And I didn't I didn't get them the gig or anything. It just kind of just kind of happened. Seattle's a small town, I guess. <laughs> Um, but all, all that to say, I've I've read his adventure, and and I'm very very excited for it. And I know some of some of the writers that uh, that that I've worked with in the past have written for it, and uh, the the pedigree on display, which I don't think has been announced yet, no. uh, is is fantastic. Yeah, very very little has been said about these so far. I think I was looking at one particular website uh, that was saying that there was like a press private thing that a couple of journalists were invited to Mm. that they could leak details out of. But I don't think anything's really been uh, mentioned about these, uh, any of these books, except the name, the rough period at which they will release next year, um, and kind of a quick synopsis of what they are roughly going to be about. Um, What I'm excited about with, uh, with Golden Keys, The Vault, 
is, um, and James is going to maybe catch some strays here, better duck, uh, is I'm excited for them to get another chance at actually having a heist this time in the adventure. I'm just saying. Well, um, uh, never mind. He's <laughs> <laughs> close. He's close to getting something. Just like, yeah, pulled back the hammer on his pistol and then slowly released. <laughs> no, yes, uh, I, I actually agree. I, I, I agree completely. Dra- Dragon Heist is a great adventure, but you're absolutely right. There's not very much heisting that goes on in it. Um, it wasn't our first pick for name. It wasn't my first pick for name. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going to get Can you say what your, your first pick for name was? No. No. Um, uh, I, I think the terms of my NDA preclude me from no, divulging information surely. like that. That's why as soon as, James, you said, I've read one of the adventures from uh, Golden Keys, uh, sorry, Keys of the Golden Vault, I was like, oh, we are straying in dangerous territory in terms of yeah. what you can and can't say. That's no, why I wanted to make no. it very clear as far as I'm aware, what's been said uh, and what hasn't been so far. Should have gotten them more riled up. Maybe I could have got some. <laughs> yeah, you really, you had to really get under my skin. To do that. <laughs> um, part, uh, part of the next- issue, oh, sorry. Part of the issue is that D&D is not a great system for running heists. Uh, there are mm-hmm. better game systems, as James mentioned, that he's prepping Blades in the Dark. Uh you know, heists are a very specific, and because they have become culturally sort of codified, um, we see leverage and we see Ocean's Eleven, and they have their own rhythms, including flashbacks, including things like that, that D&D just never has. So writing D&D adventures to fit that paradigm of the heist is not easy. And while I love anthologies, I would, I'm, I'm fearful that this will, not knowing any of the writers, you know, hoping that they can, I, I just don't know how they're going to, to do it in a way that's going to mm. scratch that itch of fans of, of heist media while still having it be a D&D game. I tried in, in an adventure that I wrote for the Embers of the Last War uh, series that was an Eberron series. And so I set it in the Kunderak vaults. Where, you know, the Kunderak was the house, the dragon, uh, the dragonborn, not dragonborn, what's it called in, in Eberron? Uh, the, the tattoos. Dragon marked. The dragon marked house, right? The dragon marked house of security, right? So it was perfect. And, and I was like, okay, how can I do it? And I, I went, iteration after iteration trying to distill it down to its essence and i you know i did okay but i still don't think that even without every ounce of design you know moxie i had that i could still do it so i hope that this book will Mm. teach me how i think from a design perspective it's uh it kind of comes down to the way that DD handles time this is one of the things i think that uh in reading Blades in the Dark, it gets me thinking about the way that scenes happen in D&D. In D&D, I think the way that most people intuit how to do it is very, it's like a simulation. It's like everything you do, you roll for. If you're doing 
a discrete thing, you're rolling for it. And because of that rolling for something, D&D starts to feel kind of weird when a roll is for more than one thing or for a more abstract thing. And, mm. you know, Blades in the Dark frequently has you making rolls to resolve situations in very, you know, sort of sweeping abstract ways in ways that are very much driven by the player to decide, okay, and this is how it's resolved because I did the mechanical bit and now I'm going to take control of the story for a bit and say all, how all that happened. Um, and D&D doesn't like to do that. D&D likes to put a lot of power in the dungeon master's hands. And, and I think you run into problems with heists uh, when the DM holds all the cards because the, the, the heisters are very smart in heists, they kind of have everything spinning in their head. And when you're asking a bunch of regular people to do that, you know, I'm not a criminal mastermind. Well, that that's part of the issue too, is you don't, you don't know what characters are coming. There may not be an intelligent character performing this. heist, And if, if there's no intelligent character, if there's no mastermind behind the heist, you have six barbarians going to do this heist, right? They're <laughs> yeah. going to do Just it differently. Just a whole team of enforcers. <laughs> and, and I say this as a DM who has DM'd for a table of six half-orc barbarians who tend to take adventures <laughs> a little differently than any writer may may envision so that's you know that's as you say that's that's if if you have if you can control the characters then you can hit those tropes if you can't what do you do <laughs> yeah for yeah. sure i think the one i had uh when i was running D at local venues um with a bunch of different tables there was a dm that was running heists and one thing that they did uh, which they might have stolen from another system i'm not quite sure and i wish i could remember this or I remember, wish I could remember exactly who it was who mentioned this to me to give them a better credit. But basically they said uh, the way that they run a heist, particularly if it's new players, as it tended to be in a lot of these venues, was that they would A, kind of assign them characters and be like, all right, we've got a rogue, we've got a fighter, we've got a, you know, cleric, we've got a wizard, whatever. Um, but also there was this trick they called I Have Just The Thing, which was at one point everybody gets to do this once during the session which is pr- just make up something that they prepared earlier. So they come up against a locked door and one character can go, ah, I have just the thing because I stole this key from one of the guards who I had drinks with three nights earlier. Um, and then the DM can like fold that guard back into the story a little bit further down or whatever it is. But it just it gives that feeling of being super prepped uh, without spending two hours kind of the group discussing how they're going to prep for the for this session. Adjusted. Oh, I, I just think you're so right that having the characters pre, preset, pre-made is such a key to running a, a good heist. In Leverage, the TV show, they they actually, the, the, the writer was inspired by D&D when creating these characters. The, the show even calls out their classes, hitter, <laughs> hacker, uh, grifter, thief, mastermind. And the, like the text shows up on the screen in the intro of the show. And if you don't have those archetypes of someone who's there to brawl, someone who can hack, someone who can infiltrate, someone who's got a, a strong personality and someone who's really damn smart, mm. uh, then then the spotlight gets muddy. The ability to do the cool things that a heist requires gets muddy. And I, I think this would be an interesting tactic to try if you're going to publish a heist adventure on the DM Guild or something like that. Uh, is to mandate that the players take up one of these roles 
And you could have a number of different classes take on these sort of broader roles. I can imagine that the grifter could be a bard or it could be a, a rogue. As long as you have a high charisma build, you know, that's something that works out fine. Mm. Um, and then just go with that. So you can have assumptions in your game design of what is possible to be done in the party. Mm. I think also being flexible with with the heist location. Just recently, I set my party on. I, I wouldn't have thought of it as a heist before this conversation, but basically they had to break into a warehouse and steal something out of that warehouse. And I'm like, all right, uh, you go to the location. There's three warehouses. There's a high wall, which kind of encloses all three of them. You can see that there are guards inside the, the wall, but as far as you can tell, you don't see any light from inside of the warehouses themselves. It's right on the water near the docks. And one of the party members is like, well, can we go down like through the pipes uh, of the sewer from the docks, like on the level below? And I'm like, yes, I hadn't thought of that beforehand, but because it's suggested, you sort of take that suggestion and make it part of the adventure so that that party member feels rewarded for sort of thinking of something um, that isn't immediately presented to them. Um, I, I wonder what it is about the heist, though, because I, I ran um, an adventure with a museum and the intention was that it was sort of Lovecraftian, the, the Miskatonic Museum. I called it the Murkovish Museum. And the idea was that it would be central to the plot because there'd been a, a robbery there and it housed a lot of magic items and they were very dangerous. And so the party were going to have to investigate and that would spiral out into, um, you know, learning about a cult, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That was the actual adventure. But more than once, as soon as I mentioned the museum, I had parties go, oh, cool, are we going to heist the museum? Like, what is it about heists that uh, that seem to attract people so much to them? It's fun. You get to be cool. <laughs> you get to be cool and skilled about things. I mean, have you ever watched a heist movie where everyone involved in heisting is bad at heisting or, like, medium average? No, no. There's always at least one person who's really good at heisting. It's it's that fantasy of competence that I always end up bringing up. It's just you want to be good at a thing. You want that that thrill of oh no, we've almost been caught, rather than it all immediately turning to mm. to bloodshed because you're used to everything immediately turning to bloodshed. Mm. <laughs> when the party make a plan that works relatively flawlessly and sees them avoid conflict situations for the large amount because they've managed to, you know, sneak or carouse their way past them. Does it feel anticlimactic? I think uh, you do you do want a little moment of almost get caught. I think the almost get caught is important. Mm. And I you know what else I think that I just thought of is that there is a thing with the heisting genre because it is specific um where it it treats bad guys as good guys, right? So you end up with this this very narrow thing that I think players often, you know, lean into in D&D anyway, where it's like, you're morally gray, you're not necessarily following the law, um, but ultimately deep down you're good guys, right? Mm. And it's harder to buy into that when you're murdering everyone that you run into. <laughs> Whereas in a heist movie, they don't they don't kill people because that would be crossing the line. That would be bad. They they knock out the guards and they tie them up, right? It's it is very rare that in a heist movie the main characters are actually killing anyone because that that's what the bad guys do. We just steal stuff because that's fine. But no, I, I do agree that there has to be that tension of really cutting it close because uh, you know. 
there's there's no there's no real tension otherwise. I think D and D's highly tactical nature also is uh, not antithetical, but definitely causes friction against the heist genre. You know, if you're if you're mission impossibling your way into a secure location, then a fight with a guard usually is one guy versus one guy, and it lasts for about twelve seconds of screen time. And then it's done. Whereas in D&D, a fight is usually between four to six player characters, one to 12 bad guys, and it takes four hours of game time. And that's not the quick, snappy, lightning fast beat down of a heist. Uh, that's that's fantasy combat. I think that's the same with uh, the we were talking, I think, last week or the week before about assassinations mm. can have a similar sort of feel to them because it's sneak in and you want that one shot, one kill feel. But very often that can lead to like the rest of the party just standing around and and not doing much. Big B presents Glory of the Giants, which is being billed so far as a Fizzbands uh, Treasury of Dragons style book all about giants, which has been uh, very much hinted at uh, in uh, the, the Unearthed Arcana. We've been talking about it on this podcast over the last couple weeks slash months as those Unearthed Arcanas uh, came around. What can we expect from this book, especially given the title Big Bees presents uh, giants, also famous for a giant hand, uh, good old Big B. Uh, over to you. <laughs> I don't think that there's too well, much gosh, to I say. I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think we can expect to see exactly what we saw in the Unearthed Arcana articles and presented in the style that we saw for Fizzband's Treasury of Dragons. And, you know, if you want more gianty rules, great. Uh, I don't know if there's much else to talk about. No, I mean, I think I think it's a good format for it because you can get a bunch of extra giant stuff, get a little bit more into giant lore without having to do another giant themed adventure. And mm. that's that is yeah. good. Give me some giant themed items. I'm I'm kind of surprised at this book, to be perfectly honest. I know the name Bigby, but I don't know much about him as a character. I know he's got a hand. <laughs> and that's about it. And uh, like on, on top of that, did we talk about this a few weeks ago? We, uh, the the Draconomicon is, or you know, a, a similar book, Fizzbands, Treasury of Dragons, etc. Mm. Books all about dragons tend to do really well because everyone loves dragons, at least a little bit. They're iconic. A lot of people are really obsessed with them, like I am. Um, and so everyone will get the dragon book. When it comes to giants, I just don't know who who is clamoring for more giants right now. I'm sure there it's will be someone really who pops up and says, point. me, I'm clamoring for more giants. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's really good. I'm glad. But we already had a bunch of giants and, oh, I've cracked the code. Volos isn't being sold anymore. That's where all the giants were. <laughs> They're going to reprint uh, him in the giant well, book. They're, there it they're is. in Mordenkind and presents uh, Monsters oh, are of the they? Multiverse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's one of my bugbears with that book is they're all scattered throughout it instead of being grouped together. So um, I it did, makes it um, hard to find them. At some point I had an idea for a video about giants and an idea for a video about Krakens. Uh, and I put it to Twitter. I just said without any, any context, I just made a poll that said giants, Kraken. And Kraken won by miles and miles and miles. So James is right that they're, they're not exactly um, 
you know, thriving. <laughs> you know, there. I would have agreed, but then I watched Attack on Titan. And, like, if you want a show that even if you don't like the the narrative of the story, although I think it's, you know, I'm going to be a, a... I got told Attack on Titan is the new Dragon Ball Z of anime, just like baby's first anime, uh, this is what you watched. Um, but just the inventiveness of how the Titans, you know, you typically think of a giant as being this, like, lumbering, you know, massive thing that swoops its arm around and it's slow and everybody dives out of the way and it's, like, destructive, but it's, you know, you just get out of the way and you're basically fine. And I think Attack on Titan demonstrates how to create giants that are legitimately terrifying because they're fast, they're aggressive, they're creative, they're uh, tactical, um, uh, and I just love the, uh, the the Beast Titans. I hope I'm not spoiling this for anybody who really wants to watch it, but this is old, old news by this point. Uh, when the Beast Titan is like hurling pebbles that are the size of boulders, and it's like a shell bombardment from World War One or something. It just like explodes into buildings and just mulches uh, whoever happens to be standing around. It just it does a really good job of selling giants as being these I mean, terrifying creatures. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I think giants can be fantastic. And in fact, when I I saw the results of that poll, I was like, how dare you all? Giants can be great. And I made the video about giants anyway. Um, but I, I think that the tricky thing is, even though giants can be awesome, can be super cool, can be the whole like center point of a, of a great campaign. I don't think that they are necessarily um, capturing the imagination of the community right now, which yeah, is why I think it's a bit of an odd choice. That's well, that's fair. Well, I, th- I think we no. do have to also recognize that, we're coming to the end of an edition and they may have folders and folders of stuff that they have are sitting on. And well, if we're going to be finishing up this They're edition, saving the good stuff for in, six in, in 18 months, uh, let's put out five books uh, in, in a year and uh, move on. So, yeah, I don't know. Are they doing that thing where you, you know, I do this sometimes as a writer, even as a dungeon master, I'll start working on a dungeon I'm really excited about and then for whatever reason the party decide to go a different direction or it's not right or I was planning too far ahead and it kind of falls by the wayside and gets forgotten about and then like six to 12 months later I need a dungeon and I pull it out and it's 60% done and I'm like, oh, well, this will be easy to prep because I don't need to do much more on this. Uh, they're just like, yeah, let's format these things, get some art in there, and Bob's your uncle. We're we're all we're all finished up. You know, this is the sort of thing that kind of makes me a little sad about the end of an edition when you bring the, this up, Sean. It's like whenever a new edition comes out, there are some things that you know you're going to get. You're going to get something that's big about dragons. It's probably something that's going to be big about undead. It's probably something like this, 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 and this. And there's all of these things that are really cool about D and D that kind of slip between the cracks. Uh, especially in the the five e model, whereas you do these big tentpole releases all the time, or or, or less of the time, I should say. Third uh, edition had a bunch of weird little books about very niche topics. Um, you know, this is a book about hobgoblins. It's like, who cares about hobgoblins? Well, there's going to be about a thousand or so people out there who care a damn lot about hobgoblins. They're going to love that book. Um, but because everything has to be an enormous tentpole, uh, that niche stuff kind of kind of gets diluted. 
except apparently when the book all about giants comes out. It's kind of <laughs> cool to see the 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 niche product get the big tentpole release. Well, I guess the thing is that giants are big enough for the tentpole release. <sighs> He's gone mad with power, folks. <laughs> he needs to be stopped. <laughs> Somebody uh, humble this man. Uh, I was going to change topic, but I do want to press on that point just a tiny bit, James, because do you think that that role of those niche books in 5e up until now, because, you know, the winds of change are upon us, has been largely filled by folks uh, doing uh, third party stuff through uh, DMs Guild and One Bookshelf and sort of publishing those hyper specific little books about kobolds or hobgoblins or whatever it is? Yes and no. Yes and no. Um, in many ways, yes. Uh, people like Ghostfire or MCDM or Kobold Press, stuff like that, can do very niche topics. You know, Wizards sure isn't going to come out with a uh, game book about strongholds and and mass combat, but MCDM did that. Wizards isn't going to come out with a dark fantasy setting, but we did that. Um, and yet, we don't have half the reach that Wizards does. Uh, even though people who really like something can go out hunting for it, they don't really have one nearly as many avenues to find that content. Whereas, you know, everybody sees wizard stuff and two, and maybe this is a bit controversial, but they don't have any promise of quality when it comes to third party publishers, which might make them a little bit more hesitant to take a chance, especially if you know, like like us, we publish really high quality books, and it comes at a, a an appropriate price point for that quality. And if someone has no idea if the book's going to be good or not, and who can trust online reviews? It's like, am I really going to drop fifty bucks? I don't know what our own book sells for fifty bucks. Right, am I really going to drop a bunch of money uh, on a dark fantasy setting if I have no idea if it's even good? Mm. Now I'm here to tell you that it is good, but <laughs> but unless you're one of the people watching this podcast, you'd have no idea. You'd have no well, idea. It's it's even more insidious than James is saying because it's not just third party uh, publications that people don't trust. People don't even trust Wizards releases. If they don't look like Wizards releases, they don't trust Acquisitions Incorporated books, even though it's published by Wizards. They don't trust uh, the Critical Role book, even though it's published by Wizards, because it's different. It's something else. So if if even books published by Wizards are getting that treatment by certain segments of the fandom, what chance do third-party publishers have to reach that wider audience? Not much. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um, all I was going to say is that there's this there's this thing called the long tail effect that um, basically if if you are in retail in the real analog world, right, you you are selling things through brick and mortar stores, you're selling physical books, you have to, you know, print those books, you have to have space for those books. So you are going to put more money and energy into the things that you know are going to sell. You're going to put that space into things that you know are going to sell because it's not worthwhile making those niche products. But when we get to online and digital uh, retailing, it suddenly, and print on demand is a great example of this, but particularly for our purposes, digital publishing through something like DMs Guild um, or, you know, drive through RPG for, for non-D&D stuff, you, you get this effect where uh, it's called the long tail because it kind of just infinitely goes off into the horizon, but it is little. And so there's not that many sales, but they can continue off into infinity. If there are only, you know, a hundred people in the world who care about, you know, this book on how to play the nose flute, 
those hundred people are going to find that product online. Um, and so suddenly it, it becomes worthwhile when you have digital avenues or um, print on demand avenues for those kinds of products. So DMs Guild really does fill that that space, that niche of this is where you can find the, the really obscure, interesting D&D stuff. But like James was saying, you don't have the same sort of checks and balances in terms of quality of the product. And not only that, but on the DMs Guild, I, I think the the meta right now, <laughs> to use a gaming <laughs> term, on the DMs Guild is to follow the Wizards publications. Um, yeah. it's, it, it is much more lucrative, generally speaking, to not hunt out the long tail, but look for the, the big upfront yeah. thing and then move on to the next thing. Particularly because... I mean, no tea, no shade to one bookshelf, but those websites are really hard to navigate. They are they are labyrinthine. They are messy. Um, so when you're on DM's Guild and there's a big banner up the top that says Spelljammer, here's where all the Spelljammer books are, that's way easier than trying to search for something specific. Um, speaking of Spelljammer, uh, this next book has nothing to do with it. Uh, the next book that they're going to uh, publish next year is... The Fandelva Campaign, which I assume is a working title at this point. Um, uh, I don't think from what I've quickly read about it, this is an expanded version of Lost Minds of Fandelva. I think it's another adventure set in the same region, uh, apparently tinged with cosmic horror. Uh, Sean, is cosmic horror what you want out of your Fandelva campaigns? No, but that's just me. And there may be many people <laughs> that do. And it's fun to go back and to revisit uh, these places. I've written several adventures for uh, the Adventures League for Acquisitions Incorporated that go back and revisit Fandelver because it's something people know and you like to update it. And you like to put a new twist on things. So I will, I will buy this campaign. I love adventures. I want to see what others are going to do in this place. The cosmic horror part, doesn't do anything for me, but that's okay. I like D&D adventures anyway. The one uh, question I have about this book, which uh, kind of stands out to me, and I don't know whether this is odd or not. I haven't been paying that close of attention, but except for potentially uh, one of the last books that's coming out in the year, and I can't say what it is without a drum roll, uh, this is the only adventure book it looks like coming out next year. There's probably going to be one other adventure book included with the setting, uh, I would, uh, I mean, not just I would assume, I think they've said it'll be similar to Spelljammer with the the, the final release of the year. Uh, but this is the only like, this is a, you know, $50, 100 or, or 300 page adventure module that you run. Is that odd? Or is that basically on par with the releases of the last couple of years? Yeah, I think generally every year has two big adventure books come out. It's been that mm. way for a while. Um, or, you know, there will be something like Strixhaven, which is uh, an adventure, but also other stuff. Or like Acquisition Incorporated, which is uh, uh, some other stuff, but also an adventure. Mm. Um, and there have been years where the two adventures, one of them was an anthology, right? Storm yes. King's Thunder yeah. and Yawning Portal came out in the same year, for example. So it's entirely possible that this is our one adventure and then the role of number two is being taken up by a Golden Vault. Yeah, I, as, like, as I was asking it, I was like, oh, wait, yeah, Golden Vault is an adventure as well. 
um, technically speaking. Um, yeah, Fandelva is cool. I like Fandelva. Uh, speaking of things that are cool, uh, our third release for next year, third, fourth, I've lost count. I'm not good with numbers. One of them. <laughs> is uh, the book of many things uh, famous for its deck. It will also include many other things, I assume. <laughs> Um, uh, the Book of Many Things is a book uh, that is themed around the deck of many things with new creatures, locations, player content. Um, I wonder if this is basically a source book that, like, if you want to include the deck of many things in your campaign, here's a bunch of resources to handle the randomness of the deck of many things. Uh, Dale, are you a deck of many things, Stan? St- I don't know the, about is that. What Stan. the kids say say these days? I don't know what that means. I'm going to be honest. Uh, uh, I don't. I don't know if I'd say I'm a deck of many things, Stan. But I think it's fun. I think it's a fun concept. It's a classic item. You know who am I? Who am I to turn it down? Uh, I I would be surprised if we had a whole book that was dedicated to one item, even if that item is iconic. Sean, did you ever run Madness at Gardmore Abbey, the fourth edition adventure? I was just thinking the same thing. I never got a chance to run it, but I've only heard good things about it. Uh, and I know that Steve Townsend uh, is a great adventure writer who actually worked on fifth edition uh, when it was still underway, although he did not work directly for Wizards. So uh, I didn't get a chance to run it, but uh, I wish I had. For those who don't know, Madness at Gardmore Abbey is a fourth edition adventure that heavily features a deck of many things. Or so I've been led to believe, as I've never run it either. I've read it, um, and uh, I, I had never read the fourth edition books by the time I'd read that adventure, and it was spread across like four PDFs, and I bounced off it quickly before I really even got to the deck of many things. It is it is listed time and time again in those sort of uh, online articles that talk about, hey, there are a deck of many things, it's a hard to use. Uh, people mm. will often bring up Madness at Gardmore Abbey as a, this, this is how you run the deck of many things. Look at this. So I don't know, hopefully, you know, get get Steve Townsend back in the building. Uh, get <laughs> get that that bright mind that made the deck work. Have, have y'all ever played an adventure with the deck of many things? Come to no. think of it, no. All right, it it does make me wonder somewhat if if rumors of its of its campaign destroying potential are somewhat overstated. Uh, the the potential for its campaign ruination is greatly understated in every possible way. Every campaign <laughs> oh, no. that used the deck of many things basically ended the same way. Is people would draw good card after good card, but if you could, I think in the, in the original D and D, A D and D, you could draw up to like four cards, and so the chances of you drawing four good cards were were well, I could figure it out if you give me a calculator, but not good. So eventually, you would draw the horrible card, and it would usually happen with the first or second person who drew from the deck. So the rest of the people were drawing from the deck, hoping to get the one card that would give you a wish so you could undo all the bad things that have happened to the previous drawers. And I don't think I ever played in an AD&D or second edition D&D campaign where the deck was, was included that didn't end that way. So when I see this book coming out, what I think my first thought was, oh, Lord, please, no. The second thing I thought was <laughs> the many things that they're talking about. They have many things again in a, in folders that they want to get out before 
this new edition comes out, oh, we have these many things. Hey, we have this artifact called a deck of many things. Let's do something that revolves around that. And I'm I'm interested in yeah. seeing it. Like I'm interested in seeing a really bad interpretive dance. It's, you know, it's just, I want to see how they're going to, how they're going to get around Shorty's this. Shorty's scathing today and I love it. Yeah. You know, but, all this talk about the, the, the destructive potential of deck of many things really makes me admire the guts on Matt Mercer for just kind of casually throwing the deck of many oof. things into his, you know, enormous oof. critical role campaign one. It's what a like, time that was. Dude, you've... Maybe he just didn't know. Maybe he didn't know the sort of head of steam the critical role had already picked up by episode fifty or whatever it. It hung around in the background for so long too. They didn't pick that up near the end. That was (laughs) no. It was like Thordax Lair or something like that, like dead in the middle of campaign one, and they kind of just had to keep Grog from drawing from that deck for dozens of episodes, and then at the very end he draws it, and what do you know? Horrible things start to happen, but it's okay because the campaign's over. <laughs> no, no, not only that, he, he drew from it off camera, like in, in the one year time break. And, yeah. and like, it wasn't a campaign ending event. It absolutely could have been. Mm-hmm. I'm still, my mind remains boggled. It remains boggled, I say. I wonder with this book, kind of uh, with what Sean mentioned a moment ago of them getting out a lot of their back catalogue ideas, the things that maybe didn't make it into something like Xanathar's or Tasha's, is this book a a Tasha's-like supplement that will have, you know, a lot of new player options in it and a lot of new stuff for DMs to play with that kind of, you know, exactly like Sean said, it had... um, it's just used the deck of many things kind of for its namesake for them to to theme it around something. The question I'm coming to is, do we think that they will, much like they did with Tasha's, try to sneak in some 5.5 slash 6E slash 1D&D concepts into this book to start solidifying those like they did with Tasha's and floating ability scores and things like that? I, I imagine there are two teams at Wizards right now, and I don't know this you know, through any sources or anything. I can't imagine that there aren't two teams, one working on the new edition and everyone else working on these books that we are going to be seeing, but there has to be crossover at some point. And if they really do want to make everything backwards compatible, like they have said it will be, then they will start needing to integrate those two teams and putting content in that is usable uh, for both. You know, it makes me wonder if this many things book is something of a magic item compendium for fifth edition. That would be cool. Yeah. That would be cool. Yeah, you know, that I'd be down. Like, I mean, the- Mordenkind's Monsters of the Multiverse, you know, started the move of monsters being compiled and updated to the new format. I'll bet that, you know, this could be a great opportunity to do the same for magic items. The the only thing I used my DMG for for a very long time was the magic items. It was just flipping yeah. and like, oh, I need some magic mm-hmm. items to put in this place. And then last but not least, uh, the last release for next year is Planescape. Which, uh, <laughs> uh I have no idea about anything. I know there's Modrons. I know that there's a city. Yeah, I know, I know there's jack a lady about who, who doesn't. She, she's uh, having a bad time. She's a bit uncomfortable. 
Um, and I know that this is going, well, I, I suspect that I know, given some of the reporting, that this is going to be a three-book uh, kind of little slipcase uh, adventure setting with a monster manual, a players-facing thing, and, a, and an adventure similar to Spelljammers. Um, please, those that know, educate us about Planescape and why we should or perhaps should not, although judging by James, I doubt this is going to be his answer, should not be excited by Planescape. Planescape's one of the coolest adventure settings of all time. <laughs> in in my opinion, as a guy who likes weird off-the-wall fantasy, um, it, Planescape is such a divergence from the the, the typical fare of, of, you know, rolling green fields, charging, knights charging across them towards walled castles. Planescape could not possibly be farther than that. And I think in the era of superhero multiverses, the uh, the just diversity, almost cacophonous diversity of settings and characters you can achieve with Planescape is its greatest strength and perhaps also its greatest weakness. Also, it just has a sort of sense of humor about it that is immediately apparent from the writing. And you might find that charming or you may find that extremely annoying, as many people did in the 90s when it was being published. But I, I think of Planescape and I think of things like uh, Hitchhiker's Guide and Terry Pratchett and also Neil Gaiman's Sandman and things like that. And it just has that sort of, it has this weird sort of joy de vivre that I think a lot of classic fantasy uh, loses because there's a sort of, there's a regalness to classic fantasy that Planescape dispenses with entirely. I had to go back and do some research on Planescape because I had stopped playing second edition when all of these uh, Spelljam or Planescape, Dark Sun, when they all came out. Um, so I went back mm. and you know, James is absolutely spot on with that. Um, it's it's best known for the city of Sigil, I would say. Uh, that being the the hub of the Planescape world. And that's where you get some really cool interactions. It's almost like post-World War II Berlin in the sense that there are many different factions coming to bear and trying to get their uh, ideas or their plots to to move forward in in a way that we don't see a lot in the other settings it's very political uh on top of those other things uh and and the the tone of it as james said was so much different than anything else you know everyone got into this guy gaxian vocabulary of of medieval words and big words that didn't have much meaning anymore and so everyone wrote like that that was what was sort of expected. And so the slang that was introduced, sometimes slang that in one language you wouldn't be able to publish uh, the, the slang that they used uh, because it meant something different to certain cultures than others. Uh, but anyway, you know, that sort of new tone captured some people's imagination as well to show you can tell some different stories. Uh, but you really do need to lean into that. Uh, Teo Sabadia and I reviewed this, uh, the Modron, the great Modron March adventure. Uh, and we were so excited because neither one of us had ever read it or played it, but we, we thought, okay, this is the Planescape adventure that everyone talks about. Let's go see it. And we dove in all starry eyed and ready to gush about how great it was. And it did nothing to capture 
all of the things that James mentioned, you know, all of this weird and wild fantasy, it was just sort of, well, it's just D&D, but it's on this plane. And it's just D&D, but it's on this other plane. And it didn't really capture that, which I hope, and I'm quite sure with the uh, developers and designers that they have at Wizards right now, they will be able to capture. Planescape, when it was being published in the in the 90s, I think, for AD&D, uh, had an element of what people, what RPG players in the 90s called a meta plot to it, where it had several adventures published. Great Mode Run March is one. Dead Gods is another important one. And you know, spoilers for adventure modules from the 90s, but the, <laughs> there's sort of a grander overarching world-altering plot at play here where Orcus who has been killed and revived as a shadow of his demonic self is killing off gods to try and regain his godlike stature. And um, this was a very controversial thing. Not the fact that Orcus was dead or anything like that. Nothing that happened in the adventure is particularly controversial, but the, the idea that these adventures would be advancing the setting in extremely detailed and concrete ways was, was quite controversial some people loved it because it created a sense of lore to the world in the way that people who play dark souls games love lore to a world but it but it also really frustrated a lot of players who felt like they had to alter their own campaign setting or to keep up those books are why wizards doesn't publish dates in the forgotten realms in their modern adventures anymore because they don't want people to have to keep up with every single adventure that's being published in the setting in order to feel like they have a handle on what's going on um, so I, I have no doubt that the meta plot, one thing that Planescape was infamous for, one thing that might have killed the setting back in the pre-third edition days, uh, will not be making a return appearance uh, when it's republished in fifth. It seems like a very, like it seems like Loki the TV show is <laughs> Planescape, the the campaign setting. The, the Lady of Pain is uh, um, I can't remember the name, Kang, Kang the Conqueror. Um, just at the end of all things and all time. That's my impression of it based on this conversation. I think the the one thing that Marvel's multiverse does that uh, D&D's multiverse is not is the sort of like alternate realities of individual characters. That's a very comic booky thing to do that D&D has never done. It's multiverses, mm. not so much an, a, a thousand reflections of our universe. It's more like entirely different universes completely this is a universe where everything's on fire <laughs> and, and there's and you know there is not a fire version of you in the elemental plane of fire just another place you wouldn't can go that to. be cool though to go to the elemental plane wouldn't of fire and see a rad. flaming not, version of you not the, the the rick and morty of uh adventure settings where there's like you know insect insect ben and um lobster ben um fire ben um yeah i i to be honest, I prefer that because I feel like as soon and I've felt this with the recent Marvel uh, kind of, you know, lineup, fees four, if you will, or five, whatever we're up to, where, you know, as soon as you start introducing like endless versions of a character, just the stakes are flatter than a pancake um, because it's like, oh, that person died. Well, there's infinite numbers of more of that, which which I feel like Rick and Morty are almost behind in parodying the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like they parodied it before Marvel quite got there uh, with Rick's whole diatribe about like, no, none of this matters. You don't get it. Like there's infinite numbers of us. Like mm. none of this is important. Um, uh, yeah. So maybe if I was to play Planescape, that is the way that I would 
that I would do it. Am I capturing the tone? Am I there, James? Um, yeah. No, I, I, I think you've got Planescape down to a T. You, you, then you add in the sort of political factionality of it that Sean talked about in, in Sigil, in the city at the heart of it all. Yeah, Sigil really is Planescape. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think for a lot of people, the thing that defined Planescape just as much as its campaign book, or, and definitely more than its adventure books, is the video game Planescape Torment. Um, that is a game that is very much the precursor to like the original Fallout games, uh, you know, classic isometric Western computer RPGs where player choice has an unbelievably large impact where you can talk the final boss to death, stuff like that. Um, that has, I think, solidified the tone of Planescape way more than the RPG books ever did. And if you want to know Planescape, you would be far better off uh, playing that game rather than, you know, taking the AD&D books and trying to gather a campaign together. It almost makes me want to ask about the relationship between D&D uh, and its video game kind of counterparts because uh, places like Icewind Dale I learned uh, from the video game before I realized that it was a, a, a place or just Dale's fridge, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what I call my fridge, Icewind Dale. Yeah. If you don't, Dale, you'd better. It's it's the northern region of Dale's Dale, the uh, Dale adventure setting, <laughs> which we will uh, create at one point. Alpeggio, Alpeggio, Alpeggio. Hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, asking, do we use sound effects uh, or do we use like audio cues during our D and D campaigns? Uh, is this something that you like to have uh, going, uh, Sean? Uh, no. Nope, I use my old voice. If I can't do it with my voice, then it doesn't get done. Um, agreed. Uh, I, I once played in a in a campaign that used Sirenscape, which has a lot of great sound effects. You know, uh, fireflies chirping, the roar, the growls of the black dragon in the swamp, the sort of burbling of the of the gaseous swamp water, um, and it was it was nice, but. Yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't. It, it doesn't feel as important to me as like music does. I need music. I love music, and I love to, even if it's not very intrusive, that sets a tone for me way more than any sort of ambient sound effect ever could. Mm. I love ambient soundscapes. Uh-huh. Uh, I think. I think what happened was I visited Disneyland one time, uh, and that opening section of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, where. You got, it's the middle of the day, blazing heat, summer in California. You walk inside a building, you get in a boat and suddenly you are outside at night and you're, it's cool. It's cold. You're in the bayou. Like it, it was so incredible to me. And so much of that came down to the sound that was there with Mm. like, there's, there's like a, a banjo plucking away. And largely there's crickets and, uh, you know, cicadas, that kind of a thing. Um, And I just was so caught by the magic of that, that I, uh, whenever I can, like to check in stuff that feels kind of um, ambient. Uh, But yeah, also largely I am uh, D&D music. I'm a a fan of music in my games, Uh, but I, I split them up into sort of thematic categories, right? So I just pulled up my playlist list so I can read to you what my different D&D categories are. All right, we've got D&D Bus Combat, D&D City Backstreets, D&D City Bustle. That's more for a shopping episode. 
D&D City Evening, the mood is different at night. Uh, D&D City Uptown, where the rich folks live. Uh, D&D Combat, non-boss combat. Uh, D&D uh, Eerie sort of vibes, but in an enclosed space, which is different from D&D Eerie vibes in an open space. Are those the I've actual got- names of the playlist? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes, wait, they wait, are. Wait, wait. Yes. Here's the name of the playlist, D&D Eerie Inside, which is different from a D&D Eerie Okay, outside. no, 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 Not no, quite. no. Okay. Some of them are close. Um, <laughs> D&D Magic Peaceful, D&D Magic Wary, D&D Outdoors, this time it's not eerie, D&D Outdoors, but at nighttime, because again, that's different, uh, D&D Tension, which is different from D&D Combat, and then I've got a whole separate playlist that is just stuff I haven't categorized yet. God, you're so gotcha. Cool. <laughs> that is that is uh, that is an intense categorization. Can I ask? Does that is that just like music, or does that include uh, sound effects and and sort of it, ambience? It includes um, ambient stuff where I can get it, but I, most of my playlists are housed on YouTube Music, so gotcha. it depends on what you can get. But when I can get it, I love it. Also. I don't think it made it across from um, I used to be on Google Play Music and then everything transferred over to YouTube Music at some point, which is not as good an app, but I, I have YouTube Premium, so why not use it? But I think missing from that, I do have also D&D uh, Festival, which wasn't on that list, which has a lot of ambient stuff in it. Gotcha, gotcha, fair. Um, well, speaking of festivals, this has been a real festival of conversation about D and D, and uh, mostly D- I was going to say other role playing games, but mostly D and D. We are going to close it out there. Uh, if you want to ask us a question, you can come hang out on Twitch. Uh, it is Twitch.tv/GhostfireOfficial. We record at nine AM Tuesday Australia time. That's right, I did Australia first this time. It is seven PM Monday Eastern. Uh, 4 p.m. Pacific on Monday uh, if you want to come hang out on Twitch or you can send an email to podcast at ghostfiregaming.com and I will grab those emails and read them out or you can even comment down below this video if you're watching on YouTube, if you're seeing our lovely faces there. Um, Like and subscribe and all those good things because it would help us grow, get out to more listeners. Uh, And until next week, I've been Ben Byrne here with Dale Kingsmill, James Haig, Sean Merwin. And we will see you all next week. You're too kind. Too kind.